Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of Relationship Radio. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing itstartswithattraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to itstartswithattraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. You may remember that great rock song, Love Hurts. And often it does. We can be hurt by people that we love dearly, even if they don't mean to hurt us, but then sometimes the things they do are just nearly devastating. Then the question becomes, well, why should I love? If there's a possibility of being hurt, why would I love anybody? And at the same time, we have this great need for love. Some of you listening when you were children were hurt by one of your parents or both. And you found it very difficult when you got older to really understand maybe even what love is. What I mean by that is that some people who were hurt by their parents, eh, when they get just into their teen years, start going a little wild, if you'll let me use that word, because of the fact that they're craving love and don't quite know how to get it. Then when they get into adulthood, sometimes these are the folks who have great difficulty having a permanent relationship because it's always like, I need to be loved, I want to be loved, but what if you go away? And so you may be the person who has lived through that situation, or or you may well be a person who has a child, or at least knows a child that you love very dearly. It might not be your own offspring. It might be a, a niece or a nephew or a grandson, whatever it might be, who have been hurt by their parents, whether the parents intended to hurt them or not. Maybe because dad left and he's now living with another woman, or mom just got tired of being the mom in that family, and she's gone off to do something else. And these kids are going to be facing some things in the future about understanding what love is and whether or not they're going to risk love. Hmm. Now, I don't claim to be an expert when it comes to children. I'm a relationship expert, all right. And many of the principles we teach to adults are applicable when you deal with children, but I brought an expert with me. This is Justin Prince. Justin has his master's degree in psychology. Is that right, Justin? Yep, psychology. Okay. And he also heads up the division of Marriage Helper, our nonprofit, called What About Me, which is our new section that we're developing, and it's going to be amazing. That's going to be helping children, children who have been hurt, whether the parents realize it or not, by something the parents have done, particularly particularly parents who are fighting or divorced. Am I saying that well, or can you describe that better? No, absolutely. I think, I think you're, you're describing the program well. It really focuses on children where it's part of a broken home, where the parents are either fighting, they're separated, or even divorced. And the whole purpose of the program is to, is to help that child who is kind of lost and kind of being forgotten in this situation where the parents are fighting. And, and actually, the title... And the name of the program is What About Me? Hmm. Because it represents that child who's standing in the middle of this broken home, and they're almost forgotten, and they're saying, Wait, what about me? Am hmm. I important? Do I deserve to be loved? Do That actually put a tingle down my spine, because I know how major that is. I mean, really, I tingle all over, Justin. It's going to be an awesome program. We're in, in, still in the first stages of it, and, and Justin runs it. I don't. <laughs> it's really out of my bailiwick of expertise, except for being able to contribute some things about relationships. But Justin, haven't you guys already, uh, and by the way, the people we're talking to typically are not the kids. I mean, we have 
children who listen to this program, and forgive me if you're a teenager and I called you a child, I know how offensive that is, but we have some kids who listen, and a whole lot of adults, thousands of adults who listen to this program, and in this program, you're going to be approaching like seven different things, and we're going to talk about one specifically yes. today, but can you kind of give us an overview of the of the seven? Absolutely, absolutely. So the core and the basis of everything that we're doing in the children's program is founded on research. And our researchers have gathered and essentially set together these seven different stages that children of divorce and children who are a part of this broken family will go through. And so I'm just going to run you through the seven stages just just to familiarize yourself with it. So the beginning of the first stage is really understanding the situation. You have this stage where you're trying to understand what is happening, what's going on, what's this dysfunction. And the second stage is withdrawal. So there is a form of strategic withdrawal that happens. Can I ask a question about that first one? So this is the child trying to comprehend what's going on? Exactly. So something has happened. Let's say there's a divorce in Mm -hmm. a family, right? So Mm -hmm. the first stage is the child has to understand, okay, so one, what is divorce? And what is happening? So there's a stage of just trying to understand what's going on. Mm. Okay. And so moving into the second stage now, it's it's strategic withdrawal, where because of what is going on, the child is going to withdraw from what's happening. They don't understand it. It's confusing. It's painful. And I'm going to withdraw. And so that's essentially the second stage. And moving on. Okay. So uh, a lady told me the other day that her son, who's like 12, said, quit trying to get dad to come back. He's never coming back. Why don't you just let it go? And so if I'm understanding what you're saying, it doesn't necessarily mean that the child, the kid, doesn't want daddy back. It's protecting. Exactly. It's, it's like a survival mechanism. Because now, when there's something that disrupts what is known as homeostasis or what is the norm and the comfort, and something disrupts that, it's a threat. And when it's a threat, it, not only are you going to try to understand it, you're going to withdraw from it. Your natural instincts are to say, I need, I need to protect myself. What's, what's going on here? Can it be just the opposite right to the beginning, Justin, so that first you actually go toward it like, I can fix this, Yes, and then you're withdrawn? Exactly, exactly. And so in some of these stages, they may happen in a different order. Mm-hmm. However, these are stages that we recognize will happen to a child. Okay, very good. All right, and the next one? The next one is dealing with the loss because, okay, so now you you understand or you're building an understanding for what's happening. You're withdrawing because you're recognizing the hurt, but then you actually have to stop and deal with the loss of what's happening. Wait a minute. So I'm withdrawing from my dad or my mom or someone who has hurt me, and I'm just going to have to actually begin to cope and deal with this loss of what's happening. Hmm. Now, does this vary with age, Justin? It does. Um, there's, a, there's a wide variance with age, and everything that happens with a disruption like this happens across a spectrum. There may be different comprehensions and different ways that a child can understand loss or understanding. So if you're, you know, let's say you're 18, your understanding of divorce is going to be at a much higher caliber than, let's say, a child who is six or a child who is seven, and they've never had a framework for understanding what divorce is. Whereas when you're 18, you've seen it, you might have witnessed it. Mm. There's more of a framework. I interacted with a guy a couple of weeks ago, maybe a little longer than that, whose lover, this guy's like maybe 30-ish, at least high 20s in his age. His lover is in the 40s in her age. And this man that was communicating with me has two little girls who are under three. I think they're twins, if I understand correctly. And the woman that he's involved with says, oh, it's not going to affect the kids negatively at all. My 20-year-old is not affected by my divorce that occurred way back when. My 20 year olds doing great, and so it's not going to affect your kids. And when I tried to tell him that she had a prejudiced view, he rejected me. So the three-year-olds, 
All right. They obviously can't know what's going on now. So does this kick in for them later? Absolutely. And so, and the biggest thing that I think you touched on, Joe, is there is an impact. There's different levels, there's different spectrums, but you cannot deny the fact that there is and there will be an impact, especially on the child. And saying that it's not going to occur. It's just not true. It's just not true. If, if you say, oh, I'm going to make this life-altering decision. Now, for you, let me, let me zoom out a little bit. For you, let's say you've been married a couple years, you have a child, but you've had previous relationships, you understand the world. You have a 25, 30-ish-year-old framework for understanding, right? Mm-hmm. But you have a six-year-old, right? And half of their life, well, we'll say half of their understanding life is now disruption. That child, Half of the child's life has now been in dysfunction. Mm-hmm. It, it's completely different, completely devastating be, because it's out of context. If I'm saying, you know, I'm, I'm a 30-year-old, I understand how the life works, if things happen, I'll move on. It's only been a couple of years. I'm sorry, but for the child, that couple of years is, is half of their life. Yeah, yeah. And many listeners to this program know that uh, in 1984, I divorced my wife, Alice, and my daughter, Joanna, at that point was six. Now, Alice and I remarried three years later, so Joanna was then nine. Now, that was a few years ago, obviously. Joanna's an adult and has her own children, married to a fine young man. And I can still occasionally see the effects on Joanna and the way she reacts, not just to me. And, of course, she loves me. Don't misunderstand. But sometimes in the way she reacts to her husband, where you can see that fear flash, mm-hmm. like, Ugh. and And he's a loving man, all those kind of well, the fact that he's blooming handsome, I think, makes it a little worse. <laughs> and the fact that he's an actor sometimes kissing other women on the screen, I don't know if that helps either. But but you understand that. All these years later, and I convinced myself when I left, she'll be fine. Kids are fine. She's resilient. No big problem. And yet, all these many years later, and it hasn't ruined her life. Don't misunderstand. She's got a good life. But I can still see the effects all these years later. I lied to myself when I said it wasn't going to hurt her. Exactly. And, and I think that realization that you've had, one, is a huge blessing. Now that you can share, that is a realization of saying, hey, what I do impacts my child. Mm. It does impact your child. And what for the positive, for the negative, it will hold an impact. And that, I think, is the first realization that it has to happen. So do you think, if another person's trying to tell me, it's no big deal, kids are resilient, even if that person is an alleged professional, you think they may have an agenda? I would have to say that there is an agenda to rely on your child's resilience at a young age to overcome what you're putting on that child. Oh, there's an agenda. Because who, if let's say, who would do that? And who would say, you know what? My child is going to be resilient, so I'm going to throw additional challenges on their back and say, you know what? They're tough. Well, you might as well just keep kicking them. And, you know, oh, they're tough. They'll be fine. You got to stop. You got to say, what I do has an impact on my child. So if my counselor says, oh, the kid's going to be fine, even the counselor has an agenda. There, There is an agenda there. I mean, and, and this is what... This is what makes me upset. Huh. It is, is I just, can see it on your face. <laughs> it's the fact that you're saying, and as a child of divorce myself, mm. you know, I have dealt with this as well, not in just in the research, you know, and in my studies, but personally sitting here saying the first thing that has to be acknowledged is there is an impact. It is going to impact your child one way or another. So the whole purpose of this program is to give you that understanding and to help you help that child overcome the additional challenges, not add to them. Now, I know this is highly speculative, but what do you think a counselor's agenda might be who says, go ahead and divorce, it's not going to hurt your kids? I mean, you know, I, I would have to be speculating and stepping yeah, and I know, out, it's speculative. Out, out of a realm here a little bit. But to say that a counselor 
is moving apart and saying, okay, it's not going to affect your child. I mean, I, I don't know if it's a personal agenda just to have more <laughs> counseling time or, or what. Well, based on what I've seen, it seems to be one of these reasons. And of course, again, we're not God. We don't yeah, know what every counselor thinks, but sometimes it's because they are still trying to justify what they themselves have done. Yeah, exactly. And other times it's because they've been taught and just accepted carte blanche, whatever they were taught, like, oh, well, they said this won't affect the kids, therefore that must be true, even when their experiences in reality indicate mm, it's not true. It's, but it's what they've been taught, they bought it, and therefore they teach it. It's not true. And, and the problem with that is if you just accept common culture saying, hey, you know, divorces happen, you know, it's just normal, you're normalizing something that shouldn't be normalized because just, yes, for the, the two individuals, you know, that, that's a different set of story. They're coming to the situations being adults, being able to comprehend and assimilate, but what you're bringing a child into that mm. mix, I'll, I'll, I'll piss her off. Everything's different for a six-year-old now who understands something. This is my life. Dad makes me breakfast. Mom gives me a hug. And then now, wait, dad is gone? Okay, wait a minute. Everything's different. Their whole world and their, their, their comfort, their structure, mm. everything changes. Everything changes. Okay. All right. So let me argue with you just a little, okay, although I'm actually on your side. They call this being devil's advocate. I hate to say that about me because so many people think I am the devil's <laughs> advocate. So let me back up. So let's say the dad has not been there for the last three years, and now he says, I'm going to divorce uh, because the damage is already done. No, I mean, that's just resigning yourself to, to defeat almost. So you're saying, all right, so the child, you know, the child's already been hurt, Right. Um, but let's just not help them anymore because, you know, uh, it doesn't make a difference. Well, does your child make a difference? Because it, let's, let's just stop here. So if you're saying, all right, my child's six, let's say I've been gone, I've been on the road, whatever, I'll just divorce, it won't make a difference. So you're saying a father doesn't make a difference in a child's mm. life. And, and that's, that's the question I would ask there. So, okay, so it makes no difference. So why help anyone then? Because if they're just <laughs> how they are, right why, why should I try to intervene and help? You know, because we're we're about making a difference. And no matter what stage someone's at, it's about making a difference in that person's life. And if no one were to help me, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't mm. be where I'm sitting today if no one stopped and said, hey, you are imp important, you are worthwhile, mm. and I'm going to help you. I mean, that's the whole point of parenthood, right? You've I got a child so. who's coming up. They're not going to just intuitively know what's right, what's wrong, what not to do. I mean, right. come on. There, there's a little bit of parenting and crafting that's got to happen oh, here. Oh, got to be, got to be. One other agenda I have seen, some counselors are trained to make the client happy no matter what. And if the client says, well, what's going to make me happy is divorce, I've actually heard situations, seen situations where the counselor said, well, then go ahead. The kid will be all right. But because he or she's been trained, I'm going to help this person do whatever makes him or her happy. Well, that's, I would say that, is, moment. that is a short, a short-sighted goal. Amen. Let's give the child candy because the child just wants candy. All right. Okay. Makes them happy. Yeah, it makes them happy right now. <laughs> but when their teeth all fall out, when yeah. they're 25, yeah. come on here. we got to have a longer vision than that. And someone's got to see your best interest, not just in the short term. But in the long term. That's an excellent way to explain that. That's very good. I'll, I'll uh, use that in one of my books and you won't get crazy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All okay. right. So what's the next one? Okay. So after we've gone through the stage of dealing with the loss of someone, there, the next stage is, is dealing with that anger. Because now you've got a child who is comprehending. They're saying, all right, someone's gone. I'm angry. What, what happened? What threatened my, my home, my comfort, my structure? What did that? And there is going to be built up anger. It's going to happen. You're going to be angry either at the person. There's going to be some sort of resentment that's building up because something changed and I don't like it. 
I liked what was comfortable. My parents, I liked hugs. I liked pancakes. And I'm not saying those things are gone, but there is something that had threatened it. And there's going to be anger that Mm -hmm. builds up out of that. My friend, Dr. Frank Scott, I think you know Dr. Scott, told me that in his work with children in the counseling centers over the years that he often sees that anger aimed at the at the parent that the kid still lives with yeah. as opposed to the other. Exactly. And and that can be just retargeting what the anger is or building it up that you drew, drove that person away. But it's 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 normal in families to lash out at that person closest to you and especially with what's building up. Because that's where you feel safe. Exactly. Like if I show my anger toward dad who left or mom who left, she or he may not come back, but this one's here, so exactly. I'll just let her have. Exactly. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you and and that's that's not necessarily a bad thing because they're opening up to you with their anger. They trust you with their emotions. And and we're going to get to this later. But that trust and that emotions to being able to open yourself up and being vulnerable, even in showing anger, is a good thing. Because when they close that off, you're dealing with something very different. And that builds up into something much more dangerous of this hidden anger that's been built up because they don't trust anyone to let it out. I, I really want to get to that. So I'm What's the next one? Because right. I want to hurry up now and get to that. That sounds very interesting. Go ahead. So after you move on past dealing with anger, it's it's working out the guilt. So it, it, By the way, if, if we were numbering these, which number is this? This is number five. Number five is working out the guilt. And okay. we're going to get to seven because okay. there's seven. All right. So we're going to seven. All right. So number five is? Number five is guilt. So that process of now dealing with the anger and then dealing with that guilt and that internal self-questioning saying, was this me? Mm-hmm. Was this my fault? And those deep questions can bury that guilt down deep, and that guilt is dangerous. A couple of years ago, a woman um, in her 40s, we were talking about this kind of thing. I didn't even know she'd come from a divorce home. She said, even today, I sometimes wonder if it were my fault. Isn't that interesting? It, and it, it's powerful, and especially in a child's mind, when they can't comprehend things, they will hold these questions and these these seeds of guilt that will grow into these huge, powerful things throughout their lives. And you'll find that that seed was planted, that guilt seed was planted way back when they were six or seven or eight, and something hurt them, and it planted mm. that seed of guilt, and that seed of guilt is dangerous. Once it gets those roots down deep that it was me, why did I do this? That could be something that can change a whole trajectory of a life. Like, like how? Well, I mean, imagine. All right, so I'm six. I think it's my fault that dad's gone. Um, Mom doesn't talk to me about it. So now I'm I'm 12 and I'm 13, and I want someone to to love me. Why did he Why did he leave? Am I worthy of that? Uh, can I be loved? Can I, I be loved? loved? It's because I I ran off this person that's supposed to love me. Exactly. And then mm. you, you see frameworks and you see TV shows and all these things that are telling you what you should be having, and you're seeking them, or even worse, you're avoiding them, and now you're hiding from anyone who can love you, which is just, just as dangerous. Wow. Okay, and what's next? Yeah, moving on. Um, number six. Number six is really accepting that permanence. Okay, so this is dysfunction. It's it's breaking, you know, what I understand is my structure, my home, and you don't, you can't leave that child in that, that you know, wanting stage where they're, they're wanting and doing anything they can, even sacrificing their own life you know, their livelihood to try to bring things back together. They have to, for their own health, begin to accept things as permanent. And it's not saying things can't be undone, but for the child's health and safety, they need to be able to move on from the situation. It's kind of interesting, Justin, that some of the things are very similar to the process known as the grief process here, where the anger and the uh, finally having to accept uh, it's not exactly the same, but it's it's got some similarities. It, but here. Yeah, and there there are levels of of crossover because you're essentially grieving the loss of a relationship and the loss of a critical, vital relationship. 
so yes, I, I would say that there are some se- several similarities to the to the grief process. You know, sometimes that step you're talking about now, uh, acceptance. Sometimes people now forgive me because I'm not trying to make it. I'm not trying to make it sound like that I have the answers and that I don't like the way that other people say things. But sometimes people will say things such as, "Well, you need to let go and let God." When I've been told that in my life, I always look at the person and go, what the heck does that mean? I mean, I, I am a believer in God. I do serve him in my personal life, but I don't even know what that means, let go and let God. Is it really another way of saying? Accept the permanence and move on? Um, I, I would say there, that there are, there are portions, and especially when, when you have dealt with the situation, you're working through the situation, you have to be able to accept the situations, even some things that you can't change, and especially this, when you're a child, your whole world, and even myself included, I remember for years I was always concentrating. How do I get my parents back together? Because mm. that to me seemed like the answer to mm-hmm. the problems that were happening. And what I wasn't doing was focusing on on myself and investing and saying, hey, I need to heal. But instead I was building up this, this anger, this resentment, because my whole focus was trying to get them back together with everything I could do. And that wasn't my place. Mm. And it wasn't something that was healthy for me. So I'm going to throw a little bit different thing at you now. So let's say the kid is you know, a teenager and a believer Yeah, that, that in whatever his or her faith is, yeah. obviously I'm a Christian. That's the one I normally think about, but let's just say in any of the major religions yeah. of the world or minor for that matter. So here's a believer who expected God to step in and do things. So it's part of the anger toward God as they understand him. It's part of the uh, acceptance having to be that, that God's not going to step in and make yeah. this different. Yeah. And that, that as well is, is really powerful. And especially when you're looking through even just the research of, you know, spiritual development and whatever the major faith may be, there is a component of that to where you are entrusting um, a spiritual being or a God to help or to save. And then now not only is your, your structure for life and your structure for home changed, but when you're praying, and you know, I, speaking from a, a Western Christian perspective, when you're praying to God, saying, God, bring my parents back together, and you've been praying hard for this to happen, and then now you have to come to the realization, not only are your parents not getting together, but God doesn't answer my prayers. Does God not hear me? Does God mm. not love me? So yes, there are some, some serious connections, especially to your faith. Mm. You know, when... Uh... I've already mentioned earlier in the program that I, I divorced Alice back in 1984. Joanna was six. As I was divorcing her, I overheard her praying one time, and she was saying, God, please make my daddy love my mommy. Now, at that point, I was so convinced that what I was doing was the right thing to do that it, it had no effect on me that day, or at least none that I yeah. admitted. Here it is now. You know, that was like in 1984. Here it is now, this program being co- uh, recorded in 2017, that haunts me. And it's like, okay, that's one of the reasons that we do what we do in helping marriages and the division that we just started that you are heading up to help children is, wow, some, I I don't say that God's not listening. I believe God is, Mm -hmm. but God uses people. And part of our motive is, okay, use us. We're going to help these kids in every way we can. Exactly. And it's, it's that burning concept of saying a child is left alone, asking the question, what about me? And they're asking God the same question. Hmm. What about me? You know, mm-hmm. I, I loved having my mom and dad together. God, do you not want that? Is it, why, mm. why, why are you allowing this to happen? And that entering that concept of a young mind that doesn't have a framework of, of life or faith or mm-hmm. community, mm-hmm. and now you're asking these life-altering questions and you're leaving the child with these life-altering questions at a young age. Mm. Now, if you're listening, understand that we don't help kids just 
who are religious, no matter what their religion is. This is all about helping marriages, helping children, helping everybody, whatever their faith might be or lack of faith might be. We're not, while we, at least I am, and I know that Justin is, we are Christians Mm -hmm. who serve God and we never try to hide that. This is not done to try to convert somebody to our faith. This is done because people are hurting and we want to help them. And so everything we do, and you mentioned it earlier, I'm going to ask you another question about it. Everything we do is based solidly in the social sciences. And so you mentioned earlier that these seven things came out of some research. Exactly. And so in the whole basis of what we're doing, like you're saying, Joe, is to help a child in need. Uh, regardless of what perspective, what faith background, wherever they're coming from, the purpose is to help the child. And the only way that we feel we could really stand on that is behind firm research. And that's why we have a group of researchers that are saying, here is what research is saying. Here is what the research is leading us to, to be able to help the child in the most efficient and helpful way. We've got some pretty sharp PhDs working with this. Yeah, we have a group of about four that are working through. They've done everything from the lit reviews to polling and suggesting doing and developing actually a complete research model for this program. This is awesome. Now, my PhD is not specifically near children, but I am helping those other four as I can based on what I know, but they're the experts on this, not I. Exactly. Is there another one? There is, and this is the seventh stage. This Mm -hmm. is the stage called risking Love. Which is the title of this program. So it's about time we got to that, huh? Yeah. So we finally got <laughs> what there. What does that mean? So with risking love, you've gone through these other stages. You really are left with a child saying, I'm seeing something, my impression, my understanding of love, and wow, it didn't work. Look mm-hmm. how painful that was. Mm-hmm. Love hurts, like that old song. Exactly. Yeah. Should I risk it? Right? Say that one more time. So should I, as the child, after seeing this pain that's all revolved around love, should I risk that? Look at, look at the hurt. Look at what it's done to me. Look at what it's done to them. Why would I ever do that? Hmm. How young do you think a kid might be, whether, whether that's been consciously processed or it's just kind of part of what's happening in them? What, I know we have to guess here, yeah. but how I mean, young? I mean, even something as, as young as a two or a three-year-old, once they start to begin to understand, okay, this is love, this marriage, and then they start asking, where's dad? Well, because, I mean, they're, they're a part of this world. They're going to grow up and they're going to ask these questions saying, wait, Johnny's dad was at Donuts for Dad today at school. Why, why was it mine? Hmm. And their framework for understanding what is love, it's going to impact them. You know, it just hit me that attachment styles were actually uh, developed in research with infants, yeah. which has to do with that if a child needs your attention emotional support. And this can happen in a baby, although it's not happening in the same way it does when you're older. Exactly. And they, they need it and you give it, then they wind up feeling secure in attachment styles. If you give it sporadically, they wind up worried about it. Exactly. If you don't give it, they withdraw. They it's withdraw like, I don't together. need you. I can live without you. So it's actually can go back even into infancy. It, it can, you know, and it absolutely can, especially because that same child is going to grow up with these frameworks for understanding, right? Mm-hmm. And so when something is withheld or something is not present, the child will intuitively begin to ask, even when they just become cognitively aware or you know, mentally aware of that, they're going to ask, wait, why didn't someone love me? Am I not worthy of mm-hmm. love? So if it's a baby in arms, the primary caregiver can fulfill that. But when the child finally becomes cognizant of the fact, wait a minute, mm-hmm. Mary has two adults, yeah. daddy and mommy, I only have one, and then I might be asking, it's silly, I'm living with my yeah. mommy, I'm maybe a three, four, or five, somewhere, and then I'm saying, where, why don't I have a daddy? Exactly. And, 
it, it starts so young. You know, now, my personal life as well has been inter- interwoven with this. My wife has gone through a divorce, and mm-hmm. so I have a stepdaughter, mm-hmm. and she is all but six now, and she is asking all these questions. Why, wait, why do I have – why is this? So did um, uh, my dad not love mom? What's going on? And she is asking these questions, and she just turned six. So she is asking these deep-seated questions already. So uh, it, it doesn't take long for that child to begin to grow to that cognitive state or that, that mental state to begin to ask because they're seeing other kids, and they're asking. They're comparing mm-hmm. their life to the life of those around them. And so would I be correct to understand here, Justin, that's why we see some teenagers who become very promiscuous because they don't even know what love is, and at least if somebody is touching me yeah i feel them all the way to those that are like i don't need anybody i'll die alone i don't ever want anybody around me so it goes across the extremes here right exactly so there there is a case of extremes and especially when when you're looking at how important this stage is for for let's say this group of children you have to understand that children understand this love on a on a term of a spectrum all the way from the side of where they're saying hey um I need someone to love me now. Someone, please, however, touch me, love me. And that's just their comprehension, the easiest understanding. And that is largely due to TV and what you're seeing is, oh, they love each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's physical. Mm-hmm. All the way to the, all, the far end of the other spectrum where they're saying, I don't need it. I don't want it. It's just hurt. Mm-hmm. I don't want anything to do with love. And both of those are just as dangerous. All right. So if I'm a mom or a dad, even an uncle or aunt, grandpa, grandma listening to this, or even if I'm a kid, now, let's kind of come up for both if you can help me with that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so how do we help kids? Let's, and, and all of these seven things are crucial. I understand that. But because we're in the month of February right now, as we record this, and it's the quote, love month, end quote. Mm-hmm. Tell me in context of risking love, what do people need to know? Got it. So especially when uh, the parent, the guardian, the caregiver is there, one, you have to understand that these are seven stages. They, they're not necessarily in order. Nothing works in a perfect framework, and people mm. are coming from different perspectives. And it could even be three steps forward, two steps back. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's one, you have to have this understanding. So when the child is, is like angry or they're lashing out or they're reclusive or they're hiding away, you have to understand it in this context. Because if you don't, you're going mm-hmm. to be angry at the child. Like, why are you being angry? You know your dad's gone. Why are you being angry? Mm-hmm. And so that knowledge in and of itself is power, and it's especially powerful for when, when you're the caregiver or when you're the parent because that child, it, they're dealing with something that they don't comprehend and they don't understand, but you as the adult or the parent have to be able to have that, that long-term vision like we mentioned in the beginning. You can't mm-hmm. have the short-term, oh, let me just give you candy now. Mm-hmm. I've got to look forward to the benefit of this child. And if I don't, what does a kid do? Well, I mean, if you don't, if you aren't looking forward, the, you're essentially leaving the child almost like the parent in the beginning saying, oh, well, they're resilient. They'll, they'll deal with it. And you're leaving them essentially out to the world to say, all right, well, they're, they're strong. They're tough. They're resilient. So when they start lashing out at 13 or trying to find or become promiscuous to try to find that love and attention, you're like, well, why did they do that? I just mm-hmm. don't understand. Well, it's because you're dealing with a child here. They don't have an adult's framework of understanding, adult, understanding that an eight-year-old understands like an eight-year-old. Not a 28-year-old, not a 35-year-old. But there are some 28-year-olds old that think like an 8-year-old. Well, there there is that. (laughs) I can't help that. Is this tied to what you said earlier about it's really important to understand that the child needs to communicate this? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I would say the first key here is communication. One, there has to be that communication for the parent to be able to sit down, even with the child, and say, hey, 
let's talk. What's what's going on? And just being able to be that present, that present person to listen. Because when the child is going to explain it, they're they're probably not going to be recording everything right, and they're going to mm. you know misunderstand things, and they're not going to understand cues of this happened or that happened, or there were things that happened before even the child was born. They're not going to understand that, mm. but they need that opportunity to sit there and express like, well. Dad hurt me, or Mom hurt me, and and they're gonna say it in a way, and the the parent has got to be able to sit there and go, okay, and and not correcting because this is a time when a child is sharing how they recorded it, even mm. as incorrect as it may be. You're just trying to understand exactly. Them. So, would it be a valid assumption on my part to think that some parents don't these don't do this because either a uh, I'm afraid I'll do something wrong, therefore I don't want to yeah. do anything at all, or b how can I hear your pain when I'm so full of my own pain? Exactly, exactly. And especially for the parent, and we understand, and this is this is a large part of the purpose of this program, that parents are dealing with their own loss too. Mm. They're grieving from something that is that is so important in their life and they're dealing with it too. But you have the same child here who's who's dealing with that same grief and that same loss. And it's painful to hear it, especially when you don't want to, but at the same time, it will be even more painful for the child for them to bottle that up. And, and to move on with their life with that because they were never had the chance to express their hurt and their pain of saying, dad left and I feel like it's because of me because this one time I was I was writing him a note. I kept asking him questions on the way home from school and he just blew up and I, I really feel like I shouldn't have asked these questions or I shouldn't have brought it up because that was what that was what drove him away. And you're as the parent, you're going to stop. And you're going to say – that wasn't, that's not it. Well, honey, it's not because of you. You know, it, it wasn't your fault. But when you're dealing with that child, they believe that. Yeah. Yeah. So hmm, I'm thinking back when, you know, when I left my children back in 84, when I divorced Alice, I did see my children every other weekend. It's the only thing I did right during that whole period. I did see my kids every other weekend, but I could picture myself that if I were trying to, to talk about it and if Joanna you know, based on a six-year-old level, mm-hmm. if Joanna somehow let me know that I was the bad guy. I mean, she wouldn't say it that way, but, you know, why aren't you here? Yeah. Why don't you love me? As a matter of fact, she actually did ask me that once. Why don't you love me? It was pretty painful for me, which is why I often was shut off the communication mm-hmm. because it's like, this makes me hurt too much. But what I'm hearing you say is, don't focus on your hurt here. Yeah. Focus on the kid's hurt. You know, I, I think about it this way all the time. The child didn't ask to be born. Therefore, the child doesn't owe you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you you brought them into this world. You owe them. And even if it's painful, in the long run, Justin, do you think, even for the parent, even if it's painful to hear some of the mm-hmm. things, that actually in the long run is actually good for the parent? Well, uh, you know, I believe it is healthy. It okay. is absolutely healthy, especially for the parent who has, has done some of these things, to be able to sit and to listen because no matter what, this is your child, mm-hmm. and your child is is going to live a life, and you mm-hmm. want them to live a healthy life, mm-hmm. a life where, where love isn't something that is such a huge risk they wouldn't dare have it, or they give their love to everyone just hoping to be loved in return. You have to have that long-term, that long-term vision where you can say, hey, this may hurt me right now, and this may not be something I want to hear, but it is important for my child to be able to express what they're feeling express their hurt, even if it's not inaccurate, even if I just want to stop them and say, you're wrong. That is not true. That is not right. And you become the fact checker. And it's not about your facts Mm, or right right or wrong or this or that or who said what or who started what. It's not about blame. It's not. It is about healing. And it's about healing for that child. Hmm. So no argument, no disagreement. Because if if I argue against the child, 
I'm assuming either the child's going to become stronger in his or her belief mm-hmm. because, like, I got to convince you, or they just finally decide you'll never understand. Yeah, and and they move on. And so this is this is a huge part of communication and relationship to be able to allow that open space, that safe space for the child to be able to share what they're feeling. And what you're doing in this, especially with the now now change, this is dif- this is a different life than the child was, let's say, born into. You're essentially setting new communication lines for that child. And if you shut off the lines, it's like, let me just cut the lines of the phone right here just now. Even though what I'm saying I don't want to hear, let me just cut those now. Yeah, good luck trying to open those back up. Because back to the beginning when we're talking mm. about a child who shares their anger with the parent who they're closest to, it's because they feel, sh- they feel safe mm-hmm. being vulnerable to that parent. And so when mm. that child is being vulnerable to you, you don't want to close that off. Wow. Now, I know that you've come up with three keys. Yes. And I guess you're talking a lot right now about key number one. Yeah, exactly. So key number one is huge, which is essentially it's communicate through that pain. Key number one, you've got to be able to communicate through that because if you don't, essentially you're you're shutting off the pain and you're not validating it. You're saying, yeah, you can't feel that pain. That's wrong. You shouldn't be feeling that. Just turn that off. It's It's not that easy. A child is feeling something that they felt regardless of how inaccurate it may be. You know, they could have described the, the sky as being orange that day, but the child may have perceived the sky to be orange yeah, that day. Yeah. And so they need to be able to express that because if you don't, they're shutting it off and they're learning, oh, I can't be vulnerable with you. Mm-hmm. I, I can't share what I'm really feeling with you. I'm learning that I can only communicate this way. And hopefully, you know, the other parents allowing me to communicate that. And I'm not having to shut off my emotion because they're going to find someone who's going to listen to them. At some point somewhere, At some point right? Somewhere. might not be a good person. This, this is similar in a way to what we tell adults in marriage situations, which is if a person says, I feel this, that's true for that person, exactly. whether you think it makes sense or not. Therefore, to say something like, oh, you shouldn't feel that way, that's the most ridiculous, inane statement in the world. Exactly. You shouldn't feel this way. Like I chose it, right? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's there. The, the child chose that. Or even this one. That's not what you feel. This is what you feel. Yeah, you, yeah, and this is a difficult thing right now. You cannot comprehend through the same the same mindset as a child and an eight year old child. I'm sorry, you're not eight. You 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 don't understand in the same way. But you have to be willing to listen to how the child is understanding, and you have to be willing to even go through some of the pain of what's happening yourself for the benefit of the child. Hmm. You know, we deal with a lot of marriages in trouble and. It's very usual for one to say, he did this or she said that. What does that mean? And what is this person, what's behind that? And I always say, I'm not God. I don't know. As a matter of fact, if you want to know, there's one sure way to find out. Listen. Yeah. Ask questions. If you listen long enough, you can hear it. And sometimes a person will start here. And by the time they finish, they wind up way over there because they're actually processing out loud, Exactly. Does that happen with kids too? Exactly. And especially when they're beginning the process, it'll be something simple like, you moved my hairbrush or you moved this or why is is my, you know, shampoo moved? Someone's always moving this. And and all of a sudden they start bottling. And again, here, here they're channeling some of that anger and it's coming out through one or two outlets. But if you shut it off and you're like, you're just wrong. Why are you always upset? Why are you always mad? Mm. You're shutting off what the child is really getting to. And again, you're dealing with a child. The child can't process and stop and say, hmm, maybe I'm connecting this anger to the fact that my dad has left and I'm lashing out at you. No, a, chi- a child's not going to be you know, a 45-year-old you know, psychologist who understands the comprehension of how, how mindset works. No, they're a child. They're, mm-hmm. they're going to let nor, emotion Nor do you out. need to be exactly. a psychologist. Exactly. And neither do you. But you have to be able to engage in communication, even if it's painful. 
Mm-hmm. And that involves a lot of listening. It does. It involves a lot more listening, I would say, than just trying to correct or trying to extend your mindset because that's also dangerous as well where you're pitting one parent against the other and you're trying to say, no, you feel this because your dad did that. And that manipulation, again, we're talking about health for the child here throughout their life, not just winning a battle or winning some sort of contest or conversation. That, that again, is not healthy for the child. Hmm. Many, many years ago, I was invited to come in and do six different Tuesdays, I think it was, for a couple of hours with some kids who were seventh graders who were at risk of dropping out of school. Yeah. And the very first one, they call, they, over the intercom, they call the name of these six kids and tell oh, them man. to come to this room. And they walk in and here, here I am. I don't look like them. Yeah. You know, I was a different color. I was a different ethnicity, et cetera, et cetera. But they came in and, and they looked at me with like surly looks like, who yeah. the heck are you? Only I don't think they use the word heck. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> and this one guy said, I don't want to be here. I said, I certainly understand. You walk into a room with some guy. Tell you what, if you'll just sit through this session, then we'll go down to the principal's office and I'll make sure that you don't have to come back. We got to the end of our session, and I said, okay, let's go down there. And he said, no, I think I'll stay. And I said, why? And a girl answered for him. Mm-hmm. She said, because you treated him with respect. And apparently, he didn't feel like anybody in his world was treating him with respect. So it really, I realize a 13-year-old's not a 3-year-old, yeah. but it has to do with, I am actually listening to yeah. you. All right. So what's key number two? Are we ready for that yet? Yeah, absolutely. Key number two. And just finishing that thought right there, a child is a person. Mm-hmm. No matter how small... They're a person. They have a heart. They have a mind. They have emotions. And just like you want to be validated and loved and all these other things, they're in the same way. Mm-hmm. But absolutely, on, on to key number two. So key number two, uh, and this one I think is key, it's building bridges of communication, right? So not only is it communicating, even if it's painful, but it's finding ways to communicate. And it's finding ways that even though it may be painful, even though there may be things that are going on, maybe there's divorce that's happening or separation, the bridges for communication are just as important because they allow you to have ways to continue that communication. Because okay. if you, I'm not quite following this. So what does that mean? Okay, so essentially, and I'll, I'll give an example here. So let's say you have that really painful conversation with the child and you're able to open up that time for the child to be able to share, right? That's important. Mm-hmm. But it's also important now that you've got that, that phone line connection to keep the phone ringing and to go back and forth to find ways to say, hey, you know, on, let's say it's every other weekend, we're going to talk, or I'm going to write you a note, or I'm going to send you a text message in the morning. Because what you're wanting to do is you've opened up that vulnerable state where the child is sharing what they're feeling. You don't want to just allow it to close off. Now they shared, they, they got it off their chest, and they're going to run away and hide hmm. because it, they'll, they'll go right back into that withdrawal. They shared, they were letting some of the anger out, and they, they're, they're, going to, they're going to hide away from what they said because it was a vulnerable state. And a vulnerable state doesn't always happen. But what you want to do is begin to build those those bridges, I would say, of communication between the parent and the child, um, especially talking through what's happening. Say, hey, here's a note, and I'm going to write you a note every other day saying, hey, I love you. Mm-hmm. You're, you're an amazing person. You're a wonderful daughter. You know, you've got to find ways to communicate, and it's different. Use technology. Use a text message. Find ways. <laughs> Back in 84, text message, <laughs> you wrote on a piece of paper, put an envelope, sealed it, and put a stamp on it. It was a different world. Does something like play therapy come into work? Exactly. Play therapy is is another scenario where you allow the child to be a child by playing, right? Mm-hmm. So the child is able to sit down, they're able to play, and they're able to talk through ways that is in their world 
with you as a parent. So it's that safe space where the child is able to communicate with you through play. It is a beautiful example of a way that you can build bridges of communication, allowing the child to be a child. All right, so a parent doesn't instinctively know how to do that. Are we going to help people know how to do that? Absolutely. And so this is one of the things that we're doing on the program. We're, we're essentially building the skills that a parent would need to be able to utilize play therapy in their home and building and improving that parent-child relationship through communication. So this play. is the kind of thing that's going to be on whataboutme.org. .org, exactly. So this is a great example of a way that we're taking a tangible, research-based skill. We're bringing it into your home through your phone, through your computer, that you can learn these skills hmm. to use them with your child. So like, well, uh, and, and of course you run this division, I don't. So that's why I'm asking some of these questions. So it'll be somebody... On a video teaching the parent? Or exactly. Audio written? What? Exactly. So we have an expert in play therapy, and she trains counselors and, and professionals to do this. I've actually heard she's very, very well known for this. She is oh. very well known for this. Cool. And she's going to come onto our program through video and through some interactive ways that you as a parent can learn, okay, this is what play therapy is. And, and some of them are simple. There's nothing that you have to you have to buy this special thing or do this special thing. If you mm. have toys in a child, that's something that can be taught right there. No, I'm I'm assuming that play therapy is going to be age specific, like probably not with an 18 year old. Exactly, you might okay. you might not take a you know an 18 year old with play doh and say, all right, let's just play. <laughs> um, I would say it's age specific, especially when you're dealing with children who you know may not be as cool to play with these toys. But there are ways to use play therapy, especially when you're dealing with younger children, to be able to say, mm-hmm. hey, we're going to create this space, and this is a safe space where we're going to play, and we're going to just. We're going to play through what's going on. And you might ask a simple question and allow them to play. So what is a parent going to have to pay to learn how to do this? Nothing. You don't – the program is free. It is absolutely free because the big thing that we're behind is the people in the most need need this help. And they don't need to be charged at all to be able to help a child in need. And that's something we firmly stand behind with this program. The children in the most need do not need to have to pay anything for this. Nor their parents? Nor their parents. As a matter of fact, you showed me a statistic once. It just flashed into my brain that about what, half? Yeah, about half half of the women who enter a divorce immediately fall beneath the, the poverty line. Mm. So they really can't afford to pay. No, absolutely. And, and so how are we going to pay for this? I mean, okay, I'm the chairman of the board of this nonprofit. How are we going to pay for all this? Because I know that you don't that we have to pay the experts and pay for the internet and all that kind of stuff. It's going to be quite expensive. So exactly. if they're not paying anything, well, how are we going to make this happen, man? So the big thing that we're doing right now is we're relying on the fundraising and the gracious gifts of others to be able to say, I want to help a child in need. I, I want to be able to extend because this isn't just a gift for right now. This is a gift for forever, long beyond your life. When you're helping a child in need, you've just done something way longer than your life has seen. And it's something that is going to continue. And when you help one child, I mean, I want to stop and think back at the, the people who helped me, right? So they helped me at mm-hmm. a young age. And here I am. We're, we're, we're all building a program together that's going to help countless children who are mm. dealing with this. All right, before we get to, to key number three, which yeah. is crucial, we've got to get to that, do we have... A web page or something right now that we can tell them that actually you know the address to exactly exactly it's whataboutme.org mm-hmm. so if you want to go out over there you can check out what we've got going again we're just getting the program going but 
by all means come so, so there's something there that could tell them how if they want to donate they can. yeah absolutely absolutely so if this if if it's really you know on your heart to want to help children and want mm-hmm. to extend and help others i would say go to www.whataboutme.org and you'll see a button right on right on the right where you can donate and you can help these children and because we are a 501c3 nonprofit it's tax deductible oh exactly. by the way if you who are listening believe like we do that these kids need this and you know people who are wealthy that would have a heart for this. Now, we would never go in and meet somebody and twist their arms. That's just not our methodology. We don't do that. But you're going to need to write uh, Justin or me or Kimberly Holmes, our CEO, or all of us. If you know people like that, we'll come talk to them, right? Absolutely. And including celebrities who, that if they were willing to lend their name to this without being paid, because it's going to be expensive enough already, like, you know, oh, well, my best friend is blank, and he or she believes in this kind of thing. Contact us by, what's your email address? Sure. It's Justin, J-U-S-T-I-N, at whataboutme.org. That's simple enough. Really Justin simple. at whataboutme.org. And, and say, yeah, I want to introduce you to this famous person or this wealthy person, and let's set that up. And we'll do it because we've got to fund this, and we are adamant that we're not going to charge these children or their parents because a lot of them just can't pay for it. Exactly. They just can't. Um, all right. What's key number three? All right. So key number three, we've gone through the first one where you're being, you're allowing communication even through the pain. Where key number two is you're you're building those bridges. So I'm going to build consistent communication. I'm going to find a way to communicate and, and show you love. Now, key number three right here is being present in the difficult moments, hmm. right? So you've allowed those times to communicate through the pain. You've opened those lines of communication. Now, when you open those lines, you have to know there's going to be difficult moments, there's going to be moments very soon where that child is going to test your love, right? And what does that mean? Okay, so, um, you know, I'm a child. My dad has left. You know, he's, he's sending me notes. He's sending me text messages. And there's going to be a moment when I'm going to just, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to do something. I'm going to send him a mean text message. I'm going to wreck a car. I'm going to throw a phone against the wall. I'm going to really test to say, do you really love me? Because I'm angry right now. Do you really love me? Can you love me in my anger? Can you love me when I withdraw? And they're waiting to see because once they, they've been hurt, right? So why are they going to risk it? Hmm. You know, we, we see that sometimes with married people, of course, even dating people. Like, I'm pushing you away, hoping that you'll you break back. through that and prove to me you love me. And when we talk to adults in a, an adult relationship, we say, okay, if you do that a lot, eventually they're not going to push through. Yeah. But we're not talking about adults then. We're talking about kids. Exactly. And they may do it several times because they're just needing the assurance, am I lovable? Exactly. And that they're wondering, wondering the consistency of your love. Is it, mm. worth, is it worth it? Because you're going to step in, you're going to love me, and then you're going to leave, and I'm going to be hurt. And I'm going to say, oh, you know, I'm going I'm to test it. And if they test it, and they begin to push you back to say, do you really love me? You know, even though I'm acting out, I'm doing these things, do you still really love me? And they're going to wonder, are you, are you going to be there? Can I trust my love with you? Hmm. Now, does that mean if the kid gets a speeding ticket that I should say, oh, honey, don't worry about it? Now, again, we're not feeding candy to the child here. We're not saying just because I want you to feel good right now, I'm going to give you candy. We're going to take that that long-term view and saying, hey, I love you. And because I love you, we're going to set some boundaries here. And mm-hmm. they're going to test your love again. Well, so-and-so doesn't set you know, any boundaries for me, and I can do this over here. And they're going to, they're going to play. They're going to be a child. They're going to play the parents <laughs> against each other. They're born with that ability. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But they're going, to, they're going to question, 
Can I trust you with my love? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean you become a doormat. No. You still are a mom or a dad. You still are a parent. But you've got to be able to communicate. And it's not just what you feel. It's what the kid feels, right? Exactly. It's a, it, exactly. It's what the kid is feeling, mm-hmm. right? So the kid may be feeling this. They may be feeling angry. They may be feeling any, any, any random emotion. But you want them to be, one, feeling comfortable that they can share that vulnerability with you. Mm-hmm. But also that they know your love is consistent and your love will be there. And it doesn't, it doesn't just get up and go away. Mm-hmm. No matter what. Even if you tick me off. Exactly. I'm still your dad or your mom and I'm going to be here for you. We may talk about it later, <laughs> but exactly. understand that in the heat of the battle, I'm on your side. Exactly. And it's, it's something that child is going to take not only right there with the parent, but they're going to emulate that, right? So even mm-hmm. as they get older, they're going to carry it with them mm-hmm. and they're going to get to that point when they're with their spouse and they're, they're beginning those relationships that they've seen modeled where they're going to begin to test love in that same format, right? Mm-hmm. So that's something as well. So the impacts that happen on a child, they will carry that with them. Hmm. So some of this then is applicable, to, like if, if I'm, of course, I'm happily married and will die happily married. Don't yeah. misunderstand. Yeah. I'm just giving an illustration. But if I were in the dating world and I'm uh, you know, dating Sally Sue and it's getting serious, does this also a plot of how I interact with her if she's yeah. been through all this stuff. Exactly. I mean, imagine, so you're, you're planting these seeds in a child's mind when they're young, and that is the world that they understand. They understand the world that's built around them. And if in that world someone may get up and leave, if they love them, they, they're going to carry that. And what you'll find is when they get to that that big relationship, like for me as an example, you know, when I was just married, right, and then I felt I had to be perfect because mm. if I wasn't perfect, my mm. wife would leave. Wow. So if I'm married to a person that has this background, mm-hmm. or I'm getting serious with a person with this background, what do I, as the spouse or potential future spouse, mm-hmm. what do I do? I mean, I would say it's the same three keys that mm. that child would okay. use, right? So I, you know, I'm a potential spouse. I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with someone who has been through this, and you're going to see this cycle of effect where it is repeatedly... Uh, happening to where now I'm an adult, I'm a child of divorce, but I'm in my marital relationship and, you know, my wife has got to sit with me through the pain where I'm, you know, I'm being angry and I'm lashing out about things and she's able to stop and say, you know what, I'm, I'm here with you, I love you, right? So being in that that place where, where we can communicate through the pain and then building those bridges of love, like passing notes saying, hey, I love you, even though, you know, we got angry and things were heated, I love you. You know, sending little notes. But even if they're attacking you? Even if they're attacking you. So how would you do that? So essentially, <laughs> again, it's that respect that you show for the person, being able to be vulnerable and share those emotions. But it's also being present at those difficult moments, not walking away to say, hey, you know, and, and for my wife, it was, I, I'm, not your, I'm not your mother. I'm not going to, to leave you. Hmm. I'm not going to leave you. I hmm. I love you, and I'm. We're going to work through this. Now, again, don't don't keep testing my love all the time there, but <laughs> yeah, because it'll get in in the long run with adults that pushes the other person away. But it's a matter of sometimes I shouldn't take it personal either because what that person just said or did may not have anything to do with me at all. Exactly, it may be something that has happened even from when they're a child, and they're recognizing, you know, as they're getting older and they're emulating what they've seen between their parents and that relationship, and they're saying. You know, I'm, I'm acting like my dad. Oh, my goodness. My wife's going to leave because my, my mom left my dad because he acted like that. And they're, they're, they're going back to that almost that childlike mindset of how they understood love because it is something that they're going to carry with them. Love mm. is powerful. 
See, just the other day I was doing a thing on, as a matter of fact, every week I do a little spot on a nationally syndicated Christian music program called Keep the Faith. By the way, if you guys want to check that out, it's keepthefaith.com. And, and the female host of that program every week is about to get married. And and so she was asking me, as a matter of yeah. fact, we were on the air, and she asked me, she said, so how do I make sure my previous relationships don't affect this? All right. My short answer was, learn from the past, don't live in the past. But what I'm realizing right now <laughs> is that what I should have said in addition to that was, um, let me talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> because if, if we were giving him the advice you just gave, yeah. that'd be the really important thing there, right? Exactly. And it's you are not... You're not separate from how you're raised. You're not. You're not different than the environment you're brought up in, right? Mm. That you're going to carry parts of that with you, and it's not saying that that will define you. No, because mm. if it did, you know, what's the point in helping and changing and learning? But it's acknowledging that and saying, you know, I, I recognize that I am a, a child of divorce. I have. I've dealt with my parents who have split up. I've dealt with these conceptions of love, but that does not define me. Mm. It is something that I need to learn from. Yes, mm-hmm. but it doesn't define how I view love forever. Okay. So Donna Cruz, if you're listening, the answer I gave you is good, but now listen to the stuff Justin said, because it's better. <laughs> Very good there. All right. So we're about to run out of time, young man. And what would you like to say before we end? And I want to ask you to say something really important because people at this point start saying, oh, they're about done. I'm going to bail out. I want to make sure that they know that what you're about to say is going to be powerful What's it going to be? Absolutely. So this, to me, is the most powerful moment in all of this. Love is a risk. Mm. It's always a risk. But it's a worthwhile risk. Mm. And this love that you're giving your child is going to go on farther than your life, way beyond you. And you want them to be filled with love, to experience the, the joy that comes with it. But love is going to hurt. Mm-hmm. But it's a risk willing you should be willing to take because it's a worthwhile risk awesome that's very good thank you so much justin for being here the things you talked about are absolutely amazing i look forward to when this program gets really fully rolled out but in the meantime whataboutme.org that's it www.whataboutme.org thank you so much for being here thank you joe